This is a very cool room. Very nice. This is awesome room. Yeah, ten nine eight seven six five four three two one. Brian Trache, Brian Trache, Brian Trache, Hall of Famer. <clears throat> Got a lot of First Nation stuff yeah, going on here, guys. Great. I'm liking it. Welcome once again to another interview special of 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by GMC and the new Sierra AT4X. Merrick alongside Elliot Friedman and ML Delich. And Elliot, the book is called All Roads Home, A Life on and Off the Ice. Brian Trottier, our interview guest today. Uh, this is an excellent book. Um, he wrote it with Stephen Brunt. And I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I can never get enough Islanders dynasty stories and not just the the years that they were successful not just the years they were racking up Stanley Cups but the building of the Islanders see to me that that Islanders team was it was created by Bill Torrey starting with a blank piece of paper that's why I've always made the point that I think Bill Torrey is the greatest general manager in the history of the NHL because he was able to plunk all timers and put them on this roster whether it was Potvin on the point, whether it was Bossy on the wing, whether it was Gillies on the wing, and in the middle of all of it, our guest today, Elliot, Brian Trotche. We should also mention that uh, at the Islanders game on Sunday night where they shut out Chicago, uh, Justin Bourne tweeting out on Monday that more than $16,000 was raised by fans mm-hmm. for the Clark Gillies Foundation. Justin saying uh, his wife and her sisters and mother all in attendance. So excellent. We should mention that as part of this. When Hockey Day in Canada was in Lloyd Minster all those years ago, we were still at the CBC, and I was out there along with the rest of the crew for uh, the concert and show that we put on uh, during that week. And Brian Trotche was there, and he played some music. And it was uh, myself and Darcy Tucker introduced him. I told the uh, one story about one year in house league hockey, I wore number 19 and I was born in 1970. So this was during the Islander heyday as they were winning Stanley cups. And I, I remember I made a terrible play and my coach said to me that you should not wear number 19. You are no Brian Trache. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, who is? Which was not the answer he was really hoping for. I'm guessing you didn't grab 22 after that one by any stretch of the imagination. Put it this way, I could have worn any number and I was not making much of an impersonation as an NHLer. I really enjoyed this conversation with Brian Trache. You know, there's always good book. There's, it's a wonderful book. It's it's great reads. Um, you know, there's always a saying. You know, you should never meet your heroes because you know sometimes they'll disappoint you because at the end of the day they're human beings as well. And I've had that experience before. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, I grew up a fan of just about everybody on that team. You know, I loved Brian Trache, Mike Bossy, Clark Gillies, Bob Bourne. All the Billy Smith, like go right Gary Howitt, Bob Nystrom. And the interesting thing about, and uh, Brian writes about this in his book too, the interesting thing about that Islanders team is, you know, during the heyday, they all had their fan clubs. Like Gary Howitt had a fan club, Bob Nystrom. Like you expect like, you know, Brian Trache will have a fan club. Of course, Mike Bossy will have a fan club. Of course, like this was a team that was so loved by that market and you can still like see the effects and the the ripples still exist of what that team meant to islanders fans obviously it was a dynasty um there were records that they set that will never be broken and i i still maintain that in the history of hockey 
we still underestimate just how great Brian Trottier was. You know, we look at that era of centers. I, I don't know that we've done enough to, to mention just how great this guy was. I mean, you and I are the same vintage. How great was that Islanders team? Like, you could dictate the style, and they would beat you at it. Close game, sure, we can play that, and we'll beat you. Wide open 7-6 game, we'll beat you there. Tough game, we got that too. High-flying, skilled, it didn't matter what type of game it was, the Islanders could beat you at whatever kind of game you wanted to play. I just love the melody. There's only one number that you need to know, Hmm. and that's 19. Consecutive playoff series one. Nobody's going to do that. This was a real thrill. Hope you enjoy it. This is Brian Trache on 32 Thoughts, the podcast interview special. Enjoy. Listen to 32 Thoughts, the podcast ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The book is called All Roads Home. Our guest is Brian Trache, who is always smiling. It looks like you've never had a bad day. Every time I've seen you, I've talked to you, you always have a smile on your face. When I'm with a good company, I think it's pretty easy. But uh, the hockey world is uh, my friendly world, kind of my haven. So when I'm around hockey guys, you know, I'm at peace. I'm comfortable. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Who who are, I'm curious, based on that, like, who are your good friends? Like, who are the people you keep in touch with the most? Probably most of my Islanders and Penguin alumni, uh, Tiger Williams uh, quite often, some of the, the really good Maple Leafs that we got to battle, Lanny McDonald, I see Lanny quite a bit, and Daryl Sittler, we get a chance to talk to those guys. It was actually Daryl Sittler taught me, he and Bobby Clark taught me how to play a 60-minute game at the National Hockey League level. You know, you play both ends of the ice, every face-off battles, every battle matters. You come out of the game totally exhausted. So Daryl's been a, a wonderful friend and mentor over the years, I th- you know, through the Players Association years. And so, no, it's it's wonderful having that alumni group. Uh, but we're part of the uh, the Saskatchewan coalition, so to speak, the Kelly Chase, the Wendell Clark, yeah. that crew. And it's really kind of fun to all, we all get together our Saskatchewan roots. We visit and Porcupine Plains, Saskatchewan, Valmarie, Saskatchewan. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's really kind of cool. Like we all think we're farmers again, and we, we talk about the good old days. One of the things you talk about in the book is that your career probably doesn't end up where it does without Tiger Williams, who showed up at your house once and said, come back. He came through a snowstorm in a GTO mag tires to the ranch, and I don't know how he got there because that, that road to the ranch from down is not the easiest road to navigate on good roads. But in that blizzard, I have no clue how he got there. 7 o'clock in the morning, it's boxing day and um i'm saying what are you doing here he said i'm dragging you back to swift current i was thinking i was gonna stay home because i was homesick and i was tired of getting beat up in junior hockey i was just like a little guy and every everything every game was a line brawl or bench clear and i didn't know uh, how to protect myself against six foot two guys that were 220 pounds i was small and you know just getting fat lip black eyes going to school next day. it wasn't fun playing five minutes a game you know fourth line i Telling you guys I broke in as a defenseman, now I'm playing forward, not playing very much. But Tiger came down and got me, and they, he, on the way back, he said, you know, I'm going to play left wing with you, and no one's going to touch you anymore. And he taught me how to grapple after practice, how to tie up the big guys, and how to protect myself. And hockey was fun again, because somebody even looked at me, he'd go mm. beat the crap out of him. And I was that for? He goes, I don't know, I owed him one. <laughs> so he's not going to touch you anymore. I was like, he just looked at me. But that was Tiger. And, and I'll tell you, I needed a big brother like that at that time, and for sure, it was a defining moment in my whole life, not just my career, 
but uh, we we were friends before that. We became even closer because of the line mate thing. And I think he had a strong desire to make the NHL. And we, like every day at practice, there was something we worked on, and it was had a lot to do with Tiger. Like, we're doing one timers. We're doing this today. We're doing this backhand passes, and that added to my desire to make the NHL. And I, maybe that push and pull and the yin and yang of having a big brother who kind of looked out for me and taught me how to, like, all the things he taught me in junior hockey. Great appreciation, just a wonderful friendship over the years, yeah. What got you distinguished? Like what, what sorry, what got you noticed rather is a, a better way to put it. Because all of a sudden the game, you know, you have more ice out there. The game becomes a little bit easier uh, now that you're riding shotgun with Tiger Williams. What was the one thing about Brian Trache that got noticed where scouts kind of went, hmm, Maybe this guy. You know, there wasn't a lot of dynamic to my game. When I think back, and I was kind of the kid that did a lot of things good. I played defense in my hometown so I could jump in the attack and and stick handle and and make plays and, you know, score goals. But I was always very mindful of playing defense as well. So when I got to play to junior hockey and playing, having Tiger on my line and playing center ice and getting some power play time, growing a little bit bigger, gaining confidence and playing with those kinds of players at that level just boosts your your confidence level and your sense of, hey, you know what, I can do this. I was kind of a give and go guy. I made the easy pass, the simple pass, didn't put anybody in the soup, tried to put it in a, in a spot where they could shoot it the best possible. And we worked on those kind of things, right pace on the pass. No, don't throw grenades, don't throw a too snappy a pass. They got to fight it off. And Tiger and I worked on those things. And Mike Bossy and I worked on those things. And Clark Gillies, you know, everybody that you worked on, they, they, you come back to the bench, you put it here, put it there, lay it in front of me, you know, not so hard and, and you kind of work on all those things and I love that part of my game and and to kind of like be a little bit sneaky I think I was a little bit deceptive out there I wasn't super fast but I, was, I had a quick step I could get ahead of you and you couldn't catch me I had pretty good balance and those kinds of things so hmm. like working off guys big guys or, or or smaller guys or just having the kind of uh balance and I don't know leverage that I had and, and working on that all the time I think added to my game and I put a sting on people every once in a while. If somebody wanted to play that game, I, I didn't hit Guy Lafleur or Gilbert Perot, but if somebody wanted to hit me, oh, you want to play? Okay, let's let's bump a little and grind a little bit. No problem. I didn't back away from anything that uh, I, I liked the competition. I really enjoyed the co- the harder the competition, the better mm-hmm. I think I played. So in rivalry games or play, I, I thought, my God, this is going to be a great game, and I get pumped up for that game is great. And, and I thought I was a good, I think all of us, I think in hockey tend to be good encouragers like Mario Lemieux, Dennis Potvin, great captains, Jean Belvo probably. They motivate their players, they inspire players. So I was always out, that guy wanted to like be encouraging and make everybody in the room kind of feel like, hey, you got something, you got to bring it tonight. Let's go, let's go, let's go. So guys that weren't fun, kind of playing well, like, hey, hey, need a little more, you know, and guys that weren't bearing down, ha but got to bear down a little bit more. So you got to be that voice a little bit in a positive way. And I like that role as well. So I kind of did a lot of little things, not anything great, but I like to take pride in doing a lot of little things really good. Let me ask you about the book. Um, and there's uh, a lot of wonderful stories in it. And I'm sure there's still a lot of wonderful stories you still have in your hip pocket. And before we get to those, I want to ask you, do you have one or two favorite stories that you wrote about in this book? Ones that when a guy like me says, Brian, give us a story, this is the one that comes out. 
Probably the Stanley Cup moments are the biggest standouts because those are those are still like uh, peak moments when your adrenaline's at its highest mm-hmm. and you're celebrating with your teammates at that magnificent moment of being a champion on the ice. You know those celebrations were spectacular, and trying to describe those moments in the book was really fun to reminisce on that and when Stephen was prodding me and poking me and saying what do you remember about that and the faces coming to life and and uh, those moments and the smells and the touch of the cup and all that stuff was just was just magnified that that was pretty special to share that stuff that first one is special I love that you tripped over the bench. When I know you I didn't even get the down ice. the corner to celebrate. <laughs> that is fantastic. My I never knew that story before. <laughs> my, my foot hooked on the boards. I flipped, <laughs> did a somersault. I'm like, ah, oh, I hope nobody saw that. But did, did you know or have a sense that when that puck was on Nystrom's stick, that that was it? You guys had took a hit from Nystrom. Four four ties. Seven minutes gone in overtime. Inning. Pass right on the stick of Tonelli. Coming in with Nystrom. Tonelli to Nystrom, he scores! Bob Nystrom scores the goal! The Islanders win the Stanley Cup! I've seen Bobby Nystrom and John Tonelli practice that play thousands of times. That was a drill we did at practice, and they would stay after practice and do it, drive the net, Hmm. backhand, deflection, top self. Both of them, forehand, backhand cross ice pass, drive the net. And when you see something like that starting to happen, you're like, we have a chance, we have a chance. Get it over there, Johnny. Boom. It's going in. And it, it hits the back of the twine like it did so many times when in practice. And you say, wow, that's special when you, I've seen that happen so many times. No, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to happen, but you sure hope it's going to happen because I had nothing to do with that play. And I still remember Lauren getting that puck, throwing it up to Nelly, cross ice, boom, pass, drive the net. I was preparing for my next shift. We all jumped the boards and my foot caught the top of the boards. I did a somersault. I came up and there's Kenny Morrow grabbing me. And that, that's as far as I got. And there's Dwayne Sutter and then somebody else. And <laughs> finally the cup comes out. I said, see you later, guys. I'm going to go say hello to Stanley. <laughs> that answer you gave to Jeff just a second ago triggered a lot of things in my head about the book. Okay, so I'm going to go through a few of them now. This one's a little bit out of sequence, but I never knew that the day you showed up in Pittsburgh after you'd signed with the Penguins, you went right to Mary Lemieux's hospital room after you had back surgery. How did that all unfold? I'm coming into town, and Cindy Himes is the PR director. I'm calling Cindy to say, Cindy, I just went through the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. You know, remember the big brick cell phones? I had one of those in my car, and I'm holding up to my ear. And she says, "Uh, I got some bad news. Mario just had back surgeries over at Allegheny General. I said, where's the address? I'll run over and say hello. And uh, I figured that's what kind of teammates do. And I went over there, and I had to trick the gal into getting me upstairs because he wasn't under Mario Lemieux. He was under Ron Jones. And uh, she kind of looked at me like, how do you know that Ron Jones? And I said, well, I'm his teammate. And I just come here, I want to, I want to say hello. So I kind of whittled my way up there. He and Natalie were in the room and they were surprised as anybody. I found my way up there, but I think we kind of connect, like you make that connection, you know, that little mini bond right away. Like, hey, I care yeah, and we care. I'm here to win a cup with you. Let's go, get yourself better. And he gave me that kind of that look like, well, of course I want to get better, you ding dong. You know, like, I'm, 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 I'm here, I'm here rested. I just had back surgery. Give me a week or two. And uh, when he came back, he was um, undeniably not only our best player, but our most inspiring player. He was one of the guys that just uh, did everything naturally. He didn't practice. He came on the ice and played. 
and he was the best player on the ice. I'm like, oh, who can, who else can do that? Maybe Bobby Orr, <laughs> maybe, maybe Gordy Howe. But here's a guy of, you know, who wanted to be a big part of something that was special because he could feel it as much like we could. There was a magic going on with our team with the Francis deal. And, uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on and Mario jumped in and boom, I mean, he elevated Kevin Stevens, you know, Mark Recchi, you know, cough got excited. We all got excited. The whole room, Mario come in the room. I told Mario the story about Clark Gillies, big man presence. And, you know, Clark would stand up in the room just before we went on. I said, let's go boys. And the whole room would get excited. So I told Mario, I said, just try it. See what happens one game. And Mario goes, he winks at me and he stands up and he kind of hits his chin. Let's go boys. The whole room's like, Oh my God. It just electrified the room, you know, and that, that, I always call it the Jean Beliveau effect when you just like that big man stands up and goes, let's go boys. And uh, so it was really kind of fun to see um, the whole room explode. But Mario had that presence and that inspiration. And he's such a great encourager. You know, he's always positive, calm and poised. And it was wonderful to be around a guy like that. Well, I hope he doesn't still use the name Ron Jones at hotels or anything <laughs> yeah, like that because you, you've totally blown his cover. <laughs> The other two, there's two other things that stood out to me, and they're about your family. And uh, there's one page, it, it really hit me. I don't want to say what the line was. You should say what the line was, but the story about your dad and wanting. It, that one really hit me. So dad was a wonderful cowboy. He looked really good in the saddle. He always his cowboy hat on. I, I tried to emulate him. I'm riding my little horse behind him. He had, he had blue and I had babe. And uh, his horse was always a little bit bigger than mine. I had a little mare. He had a little sorrel kind of a buckskin horse and I just marveled at him and how he sat the saddle and I always wanted to be like my dad I always wanted something I'm like how come I always want something he said I want this I want that and I said hey dad how come I always want something <laughs> you know you're an eight-year-old kid nine-year-old kid and he just spun in the saddle and I may I don't know if he just told him to shut me up or you probably just you know an eight because when you stop wanting you die and he spun back in his saddle and I was looking at the back I'm like oh my god I want I don't want I always want to want I don't want to die <laughs> like oh it's good to want this is great it's, it's good to be hungry it's stay hungry never never be satisfied that's kind of the message I got from it and it was a powerful moment for me as a kid because I said it's not bad not to always want something you know people say oh you know you're selfish this or you want something I'm going yeah I think I want something but you got to be kind of humble and you got to be kind of you know discreet how you ask but at the same time it's good to want and you got never stop wanting you win one Stanley Cup you want another one you want another one you're never satisfied and the second one's your mom and uh the stories you told about your first ever goal puck and the other one I really liked was the television you won. Well, you were an all-star at a tournament or something yeah, like that? Yeah, the first World Juniors held in Winnipeg in 1974. Yeah, that was really kind of a fun event because Canada, um, so Western Hockey League, Junior Hockey League was representing Canada. So they formed an all-star team. Uh, Jackie McLeod was our coach. We had Patty Janelle and uh, Ernie Punch McLean as our coaches and uh, Brian Sutter, myself, and... Um, we represented our little Lethbridge Bronco team. We went there and we were all wanted to be home for Christmas. It was over the Christmas holidays. We we're all homesick, but we played our hearts out. We came in silver to the Russians. Um, I ended up being MVP of, of Team Canada. Go figure. We had a lot of good players on that team, uh, but I was really kind of proud. One of those moments you know, can't celebrate because you came in second, but uh, the TV went home to mom. And I said, Mom, uh, as long as you're alive, this is your TV. And she held on to that TV. That stayed in her bedroom till she she passed in 2011. It was snowy. I mean, the two, she probably kept it together with, with, with scotch tape. Who knows? My 
mom, but mm-hmm. there was a her son's TV trophy kind of thing. And uh, everything I did was always like, you know, that was Brian's or this is Monty's or that's Carol's, but all their little trophies were pretty special. And that puck, that was uh, ended up being uh, like my first goal because I was, dad taught me everything righty. And so how to stick handle, how to shoot, how to, how to do everything righty. But that goal, when Claude Jensen slid it over to me, I had to come in for, I flipped over to lefty and I shot a top shelf and dad kept that puck. And he says, the game winner, that's yours. You're not a righty anymore. You're a lefty. So like that kind of made my, like, okay, I don't have to worry about always concentrating on being righty because it felt more natural to be a lefty shooter and everything else. So like that goal mom kept on her thing is an old viceroy puck or something. Mm-hmm. I, I still have the darn thing, but that was a trophy for mom. And it's, now it's a wonderful memory for me. So we're in this wonderful space. This is the Downey Wenjack legacy space, and it like looks it. gorgeous. And the, the first thing, by the way, that Brian knows when he walked in the room was the guitar, and then he said, it doesn't have any strings on it. Yeah. We're, we're tuning that thing up wall. for you. Yeah, great. I like the vibe I do want to ask about music, too, because, I mean, that's a huge part of, of your story and your background. So Gord Downey, this is one of my favorite stories about Gord Downey. So the Tragically Hip are on Saturday Night Live, and this is a huge moment for Canadian music. Dan Aykroyd is hosting and is introducing the band. And previous to their appearance, Gord Downey is talking to his nephew. And his nephew says, can you do something on Saturday Night Live like as a way to wave to me or, or do something that's just for you and me? And Gord says, okay, what I'm going to do is, you know, when we're introduced and we're going to sing, uh, we're going to perform Grace 2, I'll hold up two fingers because you're about to turn 11. And so that means that's like a happy birthday, I, I guess. I'm going to hold up two fingers. And he ends up forgetting the first line of the song. It's supposed to be, uh, I'm fabulously rich. And instead he says, I'm tragically hip. Instead he names the band because he's thinking about these these two fingers. And that becomes a sort of secret story between him and his uh, his then 10-year-old, soon-to-be 11-year-old nephew. Do you have stories that are just for someone? Because, Brian, you have seen so much. You've been through so much. Do you have stories that are just for someone specific? Yeah, but you need something to spark it. You need something that brings that story back to life. Like, for example, uh, we're, we're walking through a hospital one time, and... Nobody knows this, but we're walking through the children's ward at the hospital and there's a a mother who says, my son's asleep. Can you guys come over and just take a picture with them? And Patrick was in Colorado at the time. And Patrick was said, absolutely. Patrick goes around and gets Joe Sackey, gets Ray Bork and gets all the guys. And we take a picture with this young boy. And then we get a letter back from the mother, the little boy. He gets up, he's like, Happy as a lark. He's never had a happy day for like two weeks. He's stuck mm. in the hospital over Christmas. It was one of the most emotional moments for our little team in Colorado. Nobody knows those kinds of stories. But to me, that's one I, I try to share because when I did that in New York with my son, he goes, Dad, why are these children so happy and they're in the hospital sick? I said, because, you know, they're, they're, they're hockey fans and we're in here talking hockey stories or we're sharing a moment and they're stuck in here. So it, it lifts their spirits and hopefully they have one good day out of a whole bunch. So those are little special moments that I, that are pretty emotional for me. My son is now, he's in oncology. So like he's, he's gone through that doctor thing and he sees, you know, situations that aren't, you know, mm-hmm. always the happiest on a daily basis, but he's upbeat, he's positive and he, and he, he makes, people's lives better just by having a good attitude. And I think that's really kind of the message. I think when we, 
when we do these kinds of things, and I talk about Patrick Wong, Joe Sackick, and the lift that they give kids, is it's just um, the attitude can heal. Hockey players and musicians. There's a belief that all athletes secretly want to be musicians and a belief that all musicians secretly want to be athletes. You're both. Well, you got to know limitations. So I, I, <laughs> I, I enjoy strumming a guitar, and I was in a family band, and yeah. I can play with a lot of really great musicians. I sound a lot better when I play with great musicians, as we all do. <laughs> um, but I know my limitations. I, but I, I really enjoy music. I'm kind of a traditional country guy, but I can play rockabilly. I can play a lot of different, rock, you know, a little bit of rock and roll, Elvis, and that kind of stuff. But And it's a lot of fun. It's fun with kids. It's fun yeah. with... Uh, musicians it's fun at parties i'm gonna miss my buddy clark gillies because he loved mm-hmm. to sing he loved to do the gambler and a little bit of Folsom prison johnny cash and clark was a good singer and i just had to play the music part of it and be his little sidekick and uh it, it's wonderful to have those moments we were up north here's another fun story we're up north it's in the book and we're at a kind of a an after school teenage place where the kids can kind of congregate, do their homework, they had computers, they had a, a ping pong table, a pool table, and some, some musical instruments over there. And the place is just mayhem, and it needs, it needs some help, and we're trying to fix it up as best we can coming into town. We need some new cues and pool balls, and the computers are plugged in and that kind of stuff, and we're, we're trying to fix them as best we can. And I took the guitar down, started tuning it, and started strumming it, and all the kids settled down, they came right over, and it just kind of calmed the whole room. And I, I said, who knows country roads? And the kids, I started playing it, and the kids started singing. One kid came up, put his ear on the guitar, and I said, does he always do that? His sister said, no, he's deaf. He just wanted to feel the vibrations on the guitar. And uh, I was just, I was almost in tears. But those those moments of music that bring us all together, campfire music, you know, mm-hmm. in, in amongst, you know, native kids way, way up north, and, and that powerful thing of music, it just kind of brings everything kind of calms and, um, kind of brings every, a smile on everybody's face. So, no, I, I really enjoy music. My sister Kathy still has her band out in Saskatchewan, and her boys are really good little musicians and drummers and guitar players. But, uh, yeah, we pretend to be you know professionals <laughs> with them, yeah. When you pick up a guitar, what's the first song you, you strum? I'm kind of a Willie Nelson kind of a guy, you know, like Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, just those little ballads that kind of come to mind. Songs that made you know, my dad used to sing to my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Irish eyes are smiling and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the happy songs, you know, such a pretty world today. Look at the sunshine. All those songs just kind of make people kind of like, you know, pep up. And those were our wake up calls in the morning when dad would start playing guitar and uh, or accordion and singing songs to mom. And those are kind of the first songs I gravitate to. But yeah, anything that has a, a Waylon Jennings or a Merle Haggard uh, of that generation, I'm all in. And you said Gillies was a good singer. Was anybody else you played with a good singer, a good musician? Uh, no, not on the Islanders. There was no good musician <laughs> singers on. Johnny Tanelli did a good Elvis. Johnny Tanelli oh, did a really? really good Elvis. Yeah. Was there anyone who was an awful singer but loved singing? Dennis Potvin. I sat next to Dennis, and the guys would say, "Dennis, shut up!" But I, I, he'd say, "Am I a bad singer?" I said, "Yes." But anybody that sings with a smile on their face like you, you can sing anytime you want to. And uh, but oh god, yeah, we had some we had some clunkers. <laughs> that's a, that's outstanding. I just wanted to ask you. Jeff brought up the room and uh, what this room is about, and yeah. the people who will watch the interview will see that there are some beautiful. Uh, indigenous artifacts and tributes in here and 
You talk a lot about that in the book. And, um, you know, the foreword is written by Jesse Thistle, who I, I didn't really know that well until the last little while. And there's a lot going on in North America now about rediscovering history and, and what really happened. And Jesse has writes a very powerful forward about learning who you were and wearing your number. And look around the room, Brian, a bit and, and just tell me what you think and, and what you feel. Well, I, I noticed it right away. You, you got good vibes in here. You see the dream catcher. You see all the art. It has a spiritual aspect to um, indigenous people. But for all of us, I think it just recognizes the talents and the the difference of talents, whether it's music, love of nature, animals. And you see it in all their art. You see, you feel it. And uh, that's how we were brought up. That's how we were brought up. We just, you know, embrace your your bloodlines because you know you have all these natural talents and we thought oh music and nature and animals and art and everything that kind of goes with the indigenous blood and you know it was really kind of fun to kind of feel like oh we got to foot up on somebody else whether it's true or not we just believe that and i think that's a powerful thing when you have that that, that strong faith and belief i'm always impressed overly impressed with um, the talents in First Nations art and music and and sport and everything that they do, because um, you know it's it resonates in my in my bones. a smoky break for our Thoughtline partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. With meats prepared and smoked in-house, it's no wonder why they're Canada's home for barbecue. Check them out, and as Elliot always says... Try the ribs. Yes, their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone. And don't forget, Montana's has all-you-can-eat ribs every Wednesday. Head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar and take the all-you-can-eat rib challenge every Wednesday. Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Let me ask you about that Islanders team. Yep. I've always said for anyone who's ever asked it, that's my favorite hockey team ever, and here's why. You guys could play any way that you wanted. You guys could play a skill game. You guys could play a tight defensive game. You guys could play a tough game. You guys could play... River hockey, pond hockey. It doesn't make you guys could play anyway. It must have been the most frustrating team to play against. I've always wondered about this. The Islanders must have been so hard to play against. But it's almost as if you said to the team, "You tell us how you want to play, and we'll beat you at it." It was a team that would frustrate you to no end. That's how I imagine your Islanders team. And I, I do wonder since there were, you mentioned Podfan and, and Bossy and Billy Smith and go right down the list and yourself and Jethro. Who do you think was the most underrated player on that team? Like, who do you think that history should talk more about? We had we had a lot of uh, unsung heroes, without a doubt. Yeah, there was the Hall of Fame crew, but and and you know, the obviously the Tanelli, the Nystroms, the Gorings, Kenny Morrow, because of, you know, gold medal in four Stanley Cups. Who's ever going to do that again? And Kenny's an unsung hero. Uh, Dave Langevin, unsung hero, our, our Swedish kids, you know, Anders Kalur, Thomas Johnson, Stefan Pearson, what they brought to the the team, you know, you don't hear enough about that for me. I would say, for me, the guy I sat next to on the road all the time was Gordy Lane. Gordy mm. Lane is my super unsung hero 
Billy Smith loved him because nobody stood in front of the net when Gordy was on the ice. He was mean and tough. Mm-hmm. Nobody took liberties with any of us when Gordy was on the ice or in the lineup because he would tune him up. And you need that presence. And Gordy was fearless. I loved him for a whole bunch of reasons, but he would he would speak on on the level that everybody else understood. It was just like, guys, let's just go out there and win it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that's how he played, you know, gloves on, gloves off. He was he would play any style and he worked at it every day and he would try to improve himself and he wanted to be a big part of things. And uh I'll give you one quick story. Sure. We're in Boston, and he had, we played Toronto, and his flight came in late, and he was chewing at the bit to get in that Toronto game. He came from Washington, so we played in Boston the next afternoon. We played Saturday night here. We played Sunday afternoon in Boston. We're all a little tired, but Gordy's in the lineup, and he's all gung-ho. We're, first time he's on the ice, he, we're killing a five-on-three. So he's stepping on the ice. I figure, oh, I'll help Gordy out here a little bit. He's sitting next to me in the locker room. We're stepping on the ice. I said, Gordy, five on three, anything goes, right? He goes, yep, anything goes. Well, I meant block shots, you know, clear pucks, whatever we got to do, anything goes. Gordy's pitchforking guys, <laughs> slashing guys. Meanwhile, Barry Peterson, they're hauling off the ice. They, they have Rick Middleton going in for stitches, and he slashed Ray Bork. He's get, he's going in to get x-rays. And I said Good to him after the period. That way. <laughs> I, I said after the period, I said, Gordy, anything goes, clear pucks, block shots. He goes, Trot. So what are they going to do? Put us five on two? I took out three of their best players. It's like, okay, you got two more minutes for slashing. You know, there was a moment where, and I'm, I'm always curious, I'll ask every single Islander who was on this team about this one particular moment. I think this, this probably would have been Clark Gilly's rookie season. But where were you and what do you remember when he handled Dave Schultz? I was in junior hockey, and that made that made um, hockey night in Canada. So we we got to see highlights. We didn't see the the whole start of it or the end or the end of it, but we saw the guts of it. Um, that was big news. Um, made yeah. the hockey news, obviously. You know, it was a you know a Western Canada boy, probably the toughest guy of our era. But I was playing. I went back to junior play hockey, and Clarkie was a first year Islander. And yeah, going into Philly was not fun. I'll tell you another story that didn't make the book after this, but uh, it was it was pretty impressive. What came back was like Clark stood up to Dave, and they're both Saskatchewan boys. Yeah. Dave Dave Schultz from Rosetown, Saskatchewan. Clark Gillies, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and here they are. You know, two of the toughest guys in the league, toughest reputations, and uh, you know they're going toe to toe. So a young kid, Clark Gillies, you know, a veteran guy, Dave the Hammer Schultz, who got the better of it. You know, in my book, probably Clark, but, you know, Hammer's no slouch. He got into his punches too. But it was really kind of kind of neat going into Philadelphia the first time as a rookie. And I'm sitting in the locker room. I'm, I'm all excited to be playing in the spectrum against the Broad Street Bullies. And now, after warm-up, it's going around the locker room. Gary Howitt starts it. I want the Hammer tonight. Then Bobby Nystrom, okay, I get Seleski. And it's getting closer to me. And Clark goes, I'll take DuPont. And I'm like, holy cow. It's getting closer and closer. And pretty soon they, they look at me, who you got, kid? I'm like, I don't know. I'll take McLeish. Oh, and then keeps going. I'm like, does this happen every game? I'm like, or are they setting me up? And, uh, you know, sure enough, there's a little scrap goes on out there. And there we are, you know, night two 19s. And McLeish and Trotje kind of like looking at each other. I'm like, we got to go. He goes, we got to go. I said, yep. So I throw a couple punches. He hits me with three lefts. And I've had enough yet. We're good. I come back in. The guys go, good fight, kid. I'm like, okay, if that's all it takes, take a couple, give a couple. I'm, Why didn't anyone I tell him this guy was a lefty? <laughs> can, can, can I ask you about Gary Howitt? 
because I've I've always maintained the pound for pound, he may have been one of the toughest. He is one of those guys that again, same toy tiger, but he came to the game every night ready to do battle. He had a little chip on his shoulder, which was great for all of us because he he brought out a little tiger in all of us because that that fearlessness you need that in the game of hockey. Because I noticed when right at the end when I couldn't make myself get in that corner first and I couldn't make myself do the things that I had to be reckless doing. Mm-hmm. That's the game of hockey. And Gary Howitt was that guy. He just, no fear. Everything was reckless, reckless abandon, you know, and he scrapped with anybody who was willing to scrap with him. And that just made us just all just play a little bit bigger. A couple things. Yep. First of all, how would you compare Al Arbor and Badger Bob Johnson? That's wonderful because um, Al was very... Um, very much a commander, much like Bob on the bench and Scotty. I'd probably compare Scotty and Al, Scotty Bowman and Al, a little more similar. Bob was extremely positive, not that Al wasn't, but Al was a little more no, no nonsense. Bob was all about positive, positive, positive. We lost the game 8-1 to one in Pittsburgh at home, and we thought we were going to get our butts handed to us in the locker room and after the game. And Bob goes, nine goals scored, nine goals walked around a little bit more and and we scored the best one see you tomorrow at 10 30. you know he'd <laughs> see the positive in everything al was a little more like a sergeant in the sense that he was no nonsense his meetings were very brief to the point look you in the eye you had a problem go see him right away bob was very positive you walk into his room he's always patting you on the back on the way out like nobody plays better than you you're you're playing great keep going keep going keep those legs going sometimes you need a little bit of, a little bit of the the both of that. It was, it was really wonderful playing for both of them. What was your reaction when Al Arbor would say, Brian Trache is better than Wayne Gretzky? Because I remember that as a kid. You know, that's one of my favorite stories because I, I, I told that story to his family after he passed, and I, I don't know why he said I think he got backed into a corner because we won the game, and Gretzky had five points or something, and, and it was on Long Island. And the reporters came running into me. You know, Al just said, you know, you, he'd take you over Gretzky. I'm like, oh, my God, okay. That's a, <laughs> that's a wonderful thing for a coach to say, but he's kind of stuck with me, and Wayne's kind of stuck there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think it was one of those things where maybe he did it to motivate me a little bit, and he kind of did it to kind of say to his the whole team, like, I believe in all you guys. Like, I'll take all you guys on this team. Uh, so it was kind of a, a wonderful compliment. I loved it for a whole bunch of reasons because I had great respect for Al. But I think it was one of those moments, I think, where you kind of, kind of, you know, well, I better not let this guy down. Like he, he said something and uh, nobody argued with him either. It was really kind of cool. Like it, was like, it wasn't like, it was like uh, Joe Schlunko said, it was like, well, Al Arbor said it. So there, you know, like nobody said, what are you crazy, Al? It was like, oh, he came running like, what do you think? I was like, oh, kind of nice to hear as, a, as one of his players. Absolutely. I think the most incredible thing you guys did was 19 playoff series in a row. I, I don't think we're ever going to see that again. I like the number 19. There's a 19. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, I wish yeah. it was 20 because those creepy I, I would have thought like... about that myself, but I didn't. <laughs> no, but the 19 <laughs> hits home with me. Yeah. But like I, I, I was reading the book. You forget how many series you guys were down in yeah. and then came back to win. But I was wondering of all those series – when you look back at it, was there one you ever thought you were going to lose? Like you said, this team had us, and we got and we came back. Was there ever one you look at that was the hardest or the closest you came to losing? Yeah, for me, I, I like 
I compare these two. So we swept the Oilers in the finals uh, for Zip, and we thought if if they even get a little taste, we're in trouble. And that's how I felt, and I didn't share that with anybody but my buddy Mike Bossy because they were roommates. And we didn't say it out loud, but I think that's how kind of how we all felt. It was like, don't let them get a taste. And Smitty was spectacular in that. Defensively, the the team was so mindful not to give them even like a like a little taste. Uh, and uh, so to keep the scores down low and not not get in a fire wagon hockey with them, you know that run and gun. That was interesting. I wouldn't say we felt like we were, but that was edgy. We played Pittsburgh, I think, on our second run, and we were. I mean, they hit the post in overtime. That's how close it was. Tonelli scored the overtime goal. He scored one late in the goal, hopped over uh, Randy Carlisle's stick and and tied the game. And then in overtime, Tonelli scores. That could have went either way because we were up two games to nothing. Going, that was a best of five then. Best of five yes, then. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went into in Pittsburgh. They beat us in overtime and then waxed us the second game, come back, and they dominated that whole game. And we were like, holy cow, we're kind of hang, we're hanging on by a wing and a prayer here. And uh, we got a little prayer. We got a lucky bounce, and the power play came through with the late goal. And Tanley does his magic, you know, like he and Bobby Nystrom did so many times in overtime. But that was nip or tuck. And uh, their coach was Eddie Johnson. I asked Eddie about that, and he goes, Al was matching lines, and we had one line against you. And every time we put that line out against you, Al would pull you guys off. I'm like, that stinker, EJ's always got a good strategy, you know. <laughs> so it was wonderful to get that story from EJ. Let me ask you about Al. Before he had that the dynasty run, there was that series against the Maple Leafs. Uh, and that last game, and this this one's kind of been lost in history, and I don't know why. I think it was Harris, the turnover, Carlisle, bad turnover in overtime, and Paul Mateer made the save. I think a lot of us thought, okay, Anders are winning it on that one. Laney McDonald later comes down and, and scores. Uh, the overtime winner and the Maple Leafs go on. What happened in the room after that? I think everyone looked at the Allers and said, this team is... Well, we tease right our Maple Leaf fans by saying, we don't remember 78, we only remember 80, <laughs> 81, 82, 83. But, you know, we do remember that. That that, that was deflating. That yeah. Lanny McGoal, like it was almost a Hail Mary pass by Ian Turnbull. That Lanny hooked out of the sky like a, like a shortstop, dropped it down and then punched a shot past Chico Rash. And- had such a tough time of it in this series scoring goals he started to come out of his slump the other night in toronto and now he comes through with one of the biggest goals of his career as lanny mcdonald and the leafs win it devastating like deflating you, you, you there's not enough words to uh, describe it because the expectations of us was to, we were going to go to the finals at least that year yep. and uh and toronto to their credit and again i i say this because I ended up having a busted jaw, but it was a battle. It was a battle. My buddy Tiger was on the team yeah. going head-to-head with Daryl Sittler or Jimmy Jones. I remember all those guys that are, you know, doing battle with the whole team. He played team. the series of his life that yeah, series. Yeah, everybody. Paul Mateer, I don't, like, he, he was incredible. Their whole team had a different level of belief, whether it was the Roger Nielsen factor. Go figure. But uh, they were on a mission, and uh, so were we, we thought. But we didn't have enough. We just didn't have enough. It was back to the mirror, look in the mirror, and and what didn't we do right? And Al was great. Al was wonderful in the sense that, you know, you guys got to learn how to win. Like, you guys have to learn how to win. You guys can't be like, 
waiting for the other team to do something or expecting this guy to do something that you got to look at yourself and bring something every shift, every game. It was a learning curve. It was a big learning curve, a big pill to swallow, but um, ended up thanking Lanny for that. Thank you for scoring that goal because it really made us mad. We Mm. we got four Stanley Cups after that, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's one of those things that happen and you learn from it and you, you, you keep going forward. You know, last year, I, I almost hate to bring this up, really hard year for the Islanders. Like just, you know, Clark Gillies, Mike Bossy. As a reporter in the book, it was it was actually kind of funny to read how you and Mike Bossy specifically would not tell anyone what worked between you. You Never. said, that's us, that's no, no one else's. Because I would imagine myself asking those questions. But just your your memories of two great people and two great players and... You told a story on Hockey Night about saying goodbye to Mike Bossy, which was a beautiful story. It, 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 it's not fun. It's very, very emotional, still pretty raw. But I think what I've learned, and um, we know this, all of us, we, we, we honor our friends and our buddies and, and, and special people in our lives by, by living life to the fullest and talking about them and talking about them with the same feelings that you have um, when they're alive, sitting right next to you. Um, so yeah, Mike is um, ever present. He's alive in my memories, and his wife and children, grandchildren. I'd love telling stories of you know Mike. Mike is um, you know just a gifted goal scorer. He's a my very best friends. I had roommates. You know we had the same likes, dislikes, food, movies, TV, um, humor. Didn't matter. Like everything that that happened on a daily basis. Um, you know, through those 10 years that we were together was just magical. You know, you don't have a friend. You don't say to yourself, you know, it's this kid from Quebec. I'm going to be best friends with him. It doesn't come from Saskatchewan just around the corner. Like my buddy, Willie Disjardins, like Willie was my Mike boss before I had Mike Bossy because Willie was Mike. He could score like Mike, but it was really kind of fun having a Mike Bossy who had that same humor and same chemistry on the ice, that desire to want to win, that desire to want to contribute, that desire to want to like, what do we have to do? And Mike's gift was scoring goals. He was a goal. He was a goal scoring genius. Uh, and it was really kind of fun to play with somebody of, of that caliber who could just make things happen as easy as he did. It made it look easy, but he just had a wonderful gift to score goals. And um, that's going to happen maybe once in our lifetime. Clarkie, on the other hand, is just a, again a guy who we just looked up to because he was the big brother of the line. He was the guy that just had the presence. And he was the prototypical power forward before the term power forward was invented. Uh, he just did everything that a man of his size could do that nobody else could do in the league. Skate, stick handle, shoot, pass, you know, go to the net and make good things happen and, and provide that leadership and the presence that we needed in order for us to play with confidence as a line. So um, we didn't have to fear somebody's going to take our heads off and Clark, you would just be like, everything okay? Yeah, it is now, big boy. Thanks for being here. Like, it was just wonderful having him on the left side. There's one that isn't in the book, but I heard, I've always wanted to ask you about this. I heard when, when you were hired as coach of the Rangers, you wrote a huge... 57 pages. Yes, I heard about this. Does it still exist? Do you have it? I always wanted... To- I don't know if Glenn kept... I didn't keep a copy. I... I ended up faxing that to him. I should have kept the copy, but yeah, it was, it was a questionnaire and it was twofold. One was philosophies and one was um, concepts. So like, yeah, you're, you're basically your, how you you play the game. The next one's like concepts on team concepts. And it was spectacular because it was very, very, um, it made me think a lot and it 
brought a lot of things to mind as far as like introspection, like how I thought, which I'd never had to think about before. But it was an exercise, and I so I hand wrote the whole thing. I think that I impressed heard about the hell this. Out. Yes, I impressed the hell out of because we were playing the playoffs, and I was doing this questionnaire, and I just started writing notes, and I shipped that off to Glenn. <laughs> I don't know if they impressed me, but he, he, I think he was impressed. He goes, 57 pages handwritten, all that stuff. I'm like, all right, whatever, whatever gets me the job, I'm in. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a great exercise, and uh, uh, no, I don't have a copy of that darn thing. Because I'll tell you this, I heard about that years later that you blew people away with what you did there. Well, if I'm not mistaken, um, it was kind of the brainchild of Tom Rennie. And when he put that questionnaire together, I think he was thinking, he was saying, boy, somebody can pass some mustard at somebody. Cause they were, they were really thinkers. It wasn't like an easy question. There wasn't an easy, wasn't an easy what, question. What, do you remember what was on it or anything like that? Uh, it was more team concepts in this situation. What would you do? How would you play this on team concepts? And the other one was like your philosophy on basically anything to do with um, chemistry on a hockey team to um, your, your putting together a lineup challenges of, of defending other teams it was i was us in there going whoo this is going to make me think a little bit i'm back in school uh, i'm actually is there a college for this somewhere where i can study but it was it was it's kind of no wrong answer i guess but i just yeah. threw everything i could think of on paper that i was but it was mindful to, not to sound you know stupid to make stuff up but it was kind of insightful I, I heard it was incredible okay last one for me you you and me we have one thing in common we both hate the smell of sambuca <laughs> I, I, I learned that about, you, Sutter, I hate uh, your, guts, uh, about uh. your book and and the second thing is and you'll you'll find this i think you'll find this funny so when i was born in 1970 and one of my first celebrity crushes was the bionic woman, Lindsay Wagner. Lindsay Wagner. And I learned in the book that your daughter, Lindsay, is named after Lindsay Wagner. And I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, she loves her name. She didn't like it when she was she was little because she couldn't say Lindsay. She'd say Lindsay. She couldn't say her L's very well. But uh, when she learned uh, that this Lindsay Wagner was the bionic woman and who she was named after and the story of Lindsay and the Lindy tree and all that. She had to, we, we, we studied it to make her, and she's so, so happy, but four children. I didn't name them one of them. I, I thought I had part of the naming rights, but my son, Brian Jr., <laughs> I didn't name him. My daughter, Lindsay, was um, named by her mom and Taylor and Christian. I was, I was there. I remember I was part of the whole, whole, whole thing, but I just, I thought I was part of the naming rights too, but I, I love my kids. They're, great kids they all uh you write yeah. beautifully of them in the book thanks yeah you really yeah, do good kids uh let me finish with my last question which is about one of my favorite topics and that's bill tory yes i've uh with all due respect to the sam pollocks of the world i've always maintained that he's the greatest general manager the game has ever seen uh it's one thing to build the stanley cup champion it's another to build the dynasty and he did it starting with a blank sheet of paper when you hear that name what comes to your mind any stories about Mr. Tory, the bow tie that you can think of that you'd like to share? Well, obviously it's in the book, but, but, but my first contract with Bill and the first time I got to meet him in the bow tie and, you know, get the contract and him talking to mom and dad and then just concentrating on me. And now I, he's going to present the contract to me. Um, that was spectacular from that moment on, you know, like, he, like it was never Mr. Tory was always Bill, call me Bill. And, uh, he was, I was kiddo. All of us were kiddo, you know, like that's how you always talk to us. Hi, kiddo. How's everything? But Bill was, um, 
was a special man for all of us. Obviously, he was um, the architect to our dynasty team, so to speak. But he did magic keeping that team together. First, he put it all together through the draft, trades, you name it, he did it. And um, a father figure to all of us, much like Al. I have a tough time saying Bill Torrey without saying Al Arbor, like Bill and Al, Al and Bill. They were a two-punch for me. But I think for, for Bill and what he was coaching, like the coach coach, players, you got to come in and be the, the heavy, the hammer. Al controlled our ice time. Bill controlled our careers. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you don't want to play here? Just let me know. I'll make it happen. And uh, you don't want to play the way Al wants you to play? You don't want to play the system? That's fine. Just let me know. I won't, you won't be here. He punched that, that table with all the gum and Gatorade on it. We, it. It caught our attention. But Bill never got mad very often. When he did, boy, he was uh, he was effective. We love him. We, we miss him. Um, uh, he, but he's, uh, he's a big part of our lives. And, uh, again, we just will always remain forever in our hearts. This has been great. Brian, thank you so much for spending a lot of time with us. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very oh, much. God, guys. So this has been an absolute honor. Love the room, too. Your mind is no longer your mind when it belongs to everyone. Flipped on the other side of what it's meant to become. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Elliot and I both really uh, enjoyed sitting down with uh, with the great Brian Trotche. There is a video of the interview as well available at Sportsnet's YouTube channel. Hope you can check that out. It's a really cool setting in a real special room at the Rogers Building in downtown Toronto. Hope you get a chance to have a peek at that. Thanks so much for joining us today. Again, really hope you enjoyed the Brian Trotche piece. Uh, we'll leave you with a band from Munich, Germany, who have a uh, quirky lo-fi sort of voodoo indie sound. Aloha Input have been putting out great music over the last decade, and the latest album is something special. From Devil's Diamond Memory Collection, here's Aloha Input with The Other Rainbow, 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Mm -hmm.